the kinds of questions that someone would want to ask their advisor about. You know, how do you get paid? What are the fees that you charge? And then what is the standard that you apply when you're making recommendations to me? Is it best interests? Is it suitability? Is it something else? Welcome to the Wealth and Law Podcast. I am Brent Nelson, and per usual, I am joined by Rachel Sass. Rachel, how are you today? I'm good. How are you doing? I am also doing well. We are just, uh, as usual, as with everybody else, carrying on like regular folk, you know, working, living, doing school stuff. Actually, our kids are going back to to virtual school, which means they'll be on campus two days a week. Uh, that starts next week. So we'll see how that goes. Hopefully it goes very successfully and they can start being on campus more frequently but there's a lot of other factors not in our control so we'll we'll just have to wait and see how it goes but we're we're looking forward to it although it is we've realized nice on the one hand because they're going to be out of the house two days a week for you know say five hours or so and then disruptive on the other hand because we've gotten quite used to not driving around Mm -hmm. quite used to that so this would be a change The old bus, the Nelson family bus will be roaring, (laughs) cruising around the streets of Oro Valley. Yeah. Yeah. You got to fight the the morning traffic. Everyone taking their kids back to school. That's true. That's true. The traffic has been quite light Mm -hmm. lately with the schools all shut down. All of a sudden, there's going to be a ton of cars on the road. Yeah. I remember, remember before the coronavirus. Do you remember that? thing that was so long ago normal life so yeah way back then before the (laughs) coronavirus i remember i could always time my commute into the office and the amount of time that it was going to take on my commute barring like an accident or construction whatever but like under normal circumstances like I, i could always sort of time the amount of minutes the number of minutes it would take me to get to the office by the day on the calendar when the school district started up yeah as soon as the school yeah, as soon as they started up, I knew I needed to hit the road like at least a half an hour earlier. Mm-hmm. You know, we live in suburbia out here and like those school schedules just drive everything. You drive all yeah. the traffic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, you could definitely tell when uh, schools are off, like when they've got rodeo break. I, I remember going, I, I think it was like a good five to 10 minutes. It would like save me time. I just, there's just no traffic backup. I can just go right on the freeway. I don't have to sit there for 10 minutes waiting to get on. It's yeah. Those days, man, you remember man, those days. Remember that way, 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 way back then. <laughs> uh, yeah. For anybody confused, by the way, rodeo break is a thing they do in Tucson. It's sort of like spring break, but not really spring break. It's you get a few days off, three days out of the week. You get those off of school for the rodeo. Let that sink in for the rodeo. <laughs> Which no one goes to. Ever. No one goes to the rodeo. <laughs> Everyone will go to Disneyland instead because no one else got rodeo break off. So that's the time to go. Yeah. Yes. No. Well, I can't say no one, but I. I should say an extremely small percentage of the population is using their rodeo days break (laughs) to actually attend the rodeo. Yes. Leaving open many questions about Mm. rodeo day break. (laughs) All right. Well, today we are going to talk about investing, not necessarily to tell anybody how to do it wisely, I guess, but more to tell people or how to do it really, but more to just explain some of the background information that we encounter from time to time uh, with friends, family, colleagues, and clients, uh, things that people maybe don't understand. So hopefully we can break this down so that people will understand them. And then from there, be a little more uh, savvy when they're trying to do their investments and plan for retirement, um, all of which are good things to do. So I thought we would start by just explaining retirement accounts generally, you know, like sometimes I I hear the comment from a friend, family member, colleague, uh, uh, client, something like we're discussing types of investments, not that I'm necessarily telling them what investments to buy, but we 
it might come up and they might say, is that an IRA? Thinking that an IRA is an investment, okay? So let me just sort of break this down a little bit. An IRA, for anybody confused, is just an account. It's like a checking account or a savings account. It's just a different type of account. It happens to have rules attached to it about how much money you can put into the IRA, the timing of money that you can put into the IRA, the taxation of the account while the money is inside the IRA doing whatever it's doing, and then the timing of and taxation of when the money can come out of the account. So it just, it's like a sort of like a checking account or a brokerage account with a bunch of extra rules attached to it because it gets special tax treatment. So if you just think of an IRA as an account, you will have figured out IRAs. It's pretty much all you need to know. I think you perfectly summed it up right there. Yeah, Thank you. I think <laughs> when you think about retirement accounts, yeah, it's, I mean, it's definitely an investment for your future, right? For, for way down the line. So you can think of it like that, but it, it really is just an account. And that's the same for a 401k account. So slightly different um, 401k can be offered like through an employer sponsored plan. And that's typically where the employee is putting X amount of dollars per paycheck into the account. Sometimes the employer uh, will be matching a certain amount or they will give a percentage amount each year. So that's really great. And the money just stays in the account. Again, like you said, um, it comes out of the paycheck uh, pre-tax. So that means when you take out the money later down the road, it will be taxed at that point. So um, that's something to keep in mind. Like you were saying, there's all the, the tax rules about when you can take out and when things will be taxed. Um, but it's an account and it's going to be invested by the, the money in the account will be invested by whatever the uh, company is that's that's managing it. And so, you know, you'll get quarterly reports, things like that, that come in and they tell you how your account's doing. Um, but that's an account that typically you don't touch, you don't look at because, or some people look at it quite frequently, but typically, you know, you're not going to be retiring in the next five years, potentially. For me, I'm going to be retiring decades down the road. So don't need to look at it. It's going to do what it's going to do. And then later down the road, I can see how it's doing, check the uh, management strategy of it and when I finally get to that lovely point of retirement, although I truly do love being in my 20s, so I don't want to, you know, go to that point down the road. Um, at that point, then, um, you know, I should have a decent amount of money in my account. I can pull it out. Unfortunately, I'm going to be taxed at that amount uh, when I start taking uh, withdrawals. So I have to kind of start planning for that down the road. But yeah, it's just another account. Yeah, and it's a it's an account that then can invest in a lot of different things. So, and this is true of IRAs as well. 401ks are slightly different. So I'll maybe try to explain, I will try to explain the difference between the two from sort of an investment perspective. But conceivably, you could put money into an IRA or a 401k and it could just sit in cash. So cash is just not gonna grow. Cash is not really an investment. I, I mean, I guess unless what you really wanna be invested in is US currency, um, then it is an investment, but it's not really an investment. So cash is, you could just have cash stored in in an IRA or a 401k, just like you could in a checking account. And it's going to do basically what it does in a checking account, which is do nothing. Um, but with 401k plans, then inside your account, oftentimes the employer will have an arrangement with some financial institution like a, a Fidelity or uh, a TD Ameritrade or a Schwab or, you know, one of these big financial institutions where that financial institution for that particular 401k plan will have certain investment options that you can select. So you can take your cash and then make investments in certain options. Usually those options are funds, which is really a pool of money that many, many people are putting money into. And then that organization takes all the money collectively and invests it in certain ways. So those are like mutual funds or different types of funds. Um, sometimes you have the ability in those accounts to buy individual stocks and bonds, which we'll talk about in just a minute. But you usually, if you want to have that option, have to select what's called a self-directed or oftentimes it's called a self-directed component on, on the account in order to buy individual stocks and bonds. But so inside the 401k plan itself, then you have the ability to invest in a, a usually somewhat limited number of options. Okay. Now flip that. And the reasons for that are somewhat historic and we could really get into the details of that whether it's good or bad, but then you flip it into just a regular IRA. Okay, this is not an employee employer sponsored 
account typically. Um, and the IRA then usually has the ability or within the IRA, you usually have the ability to invest in pretty much anything. There are some limits to that. It's usually things that are traded on the market. There are some instances where you can set up an IRA that then can invest in things that are not say traded on the open markets like real estate. Um, but you have to kind of set up a special plan or a special IRA that allows you to do that. Most IRAs with major financial institutions will essentially say you can invest in cash or you can invest in things that are being traded on the open markets, stocks, bonds, mutual funds, um, sometimes what they call exchange traded funds, which is basically a mutual fund that's being traded in an open market. And that IRA account then doesn't have the same limitation on the types of investments that you can make that the employer-sponsored 401k often has. So IRA is usually a little more flexible, 401k is a little less flexible in your options, although very often they have this self-directed piece where it's a little escape valve if you want to invest in things that are not on their menu. Yeah. And I think it's also good to point out, so we get a lot of questions about traditional IRAs and Roth IRAs and kind of what the difference is between those. So a traditional IRA, you, um, like we talked about, you're putting money into an account and with the traditional IRA, the money is being um, put in pre-tax. And so when you take out, uh, when you take withdrawals from that account later down the road, that money is going to be taxed at that time. And so it'll be taxed at whatever income tax rate you are then. In contrast, a Roth IRA, the money is taxed when you put it into the account now. So then when you take withdrawals later down the road, you're not taxed on those withdrawals. And so a lot of people we see do a combination of both traditional and Roth IRAs because one, they want to make sure that later down the road, they don't have a lot of income tax liability by taking out withdrawals and just solely relying on that. Also, people take into consideration what they hypothesize their income to be by the time they retire. So I remember when I first started uh, working out of law school, I got like a IRA 101 and people were saying, all right, well, if you are hoping to become managing partner by the time you retire, when you're managing partner, you're going to make a lot more money than when you are an associate. And so you have to think at that point, you might have a really high income tax bracket compared to where you are earlier. So maybe a Roth IRA might be for you. Have it taxed now at a lower income tax rate than compared to when it's higher. Other people, though, they think when I retire, I might be down to a part-time, so I might not be at such a high income threshold, and so maybe a Roth IRA isn't the best vehicle for me. Maybe I want a traditional IRA. So those are things for uh, people to consider in determining you know, which account do I want, or again, maybe setting up both types of accounts. Yeah, and it's very difficult to guess between the two. Um, I know there's a lot of financial advisors that very much like Roth accounts. There are many good features of Roth accounts. The downside to the Roth account is you have to put in after-tax money. Excuse me, after-tax money. So let me let me break that that down just a little bit. For a traditional IRA, depending on your income thresholds, you can contribute somewhere around six thousand uh, dollars annually, which doesn't sound like a lot, but if you do it over a long period of time, it can become a lot of money. Um, and that amount is deductible against your taxes. So it ultimately, if you take your tax rate, so if your tax rate is say 20% or 25%, every dollar that you put in, the government subsidizes 20 to 25% of those dollars in the form of reducing your, your tax burden by that amount, okay? So you're saving the money, even though you put in say six grand, you're kind of getting back in tax savings that 20, 25%. Same thing can happen with 401ks if you make what's called an elective deferral, which is basically just you, the employee, choosing to make a contribution to the account. Um, when you're a younger person right now, you can put in as much as $19,500 a year. And all of those dollars go in before tax is applied. So same thing, it's like taking a deduction. In essence, the federal government is subsidizing that $19,500 because you get a deduction, in essence, against your taxes. You save the tax hit on your tax return so that when you put the $19,500, 
with the subsidy, you're actually able to sort of save inside and outside of the account more than 19500 And that component, the, those deductible components, to, in my mind, don't make a lot of sense to turn into Roth accounts because you've gotten the the benefit. You've gotten a deduction up front. The federal government has already subsidized that money for you. If you then turn that into a Roth account, you would lose the deduction. You would lose the subsidy because now you have to pay tax on it. So that piece of it, I, I have a hard time wrapping my mind around the wisdom of giving up free money from the federal government. However, um, I know not every uh, advisor believes that that is true. So that's just one Joe Schmo's opinion on that. Um, so yeah, Roth IRAs can be a really useful tool, as you say, Rachel, because when the money comes out on the back end, it's tax-free. So let's let's sort of change focus just a little bit and go from IRAs to I, IRAs and 401ks or uh, retirement ac accounts on one hand to just like a, a traditional brokerage account. So what's different between retirement accounts on one hand and then just a regular brokerage account on the other hand? So the main difference is you don't have all these crazy tax rules, right? It's a lot more simpler. So you don't have the rules um, dictating how much you can put in every year, when you can take money out, when you're required to take money out, all of that stuff. So brokerage accounts are typically what we hear of people, you know, having an account at uh, Schwab, Ameritrade. Um, I think, you know, they've got like the Robinhood accounts, all that kind of stuff now. And so basically you're putting in a sum of money, whatever amount of money, and you can invest it in stocks, in bonds, in index funds, all sorts of good things. And you can be as involved or not as you want. Um, so for those who just want to get involved in investing because they, like you were saying earlier, they don't want to just put money into a savings account and have a you know 0.001% interest rate on it. They want a little bit more and they're willing to take on the risk of the market fluctu uh, fluctuations, then um, they could say put money into a brokerage account and that money is going into an index fund. And the index fund is basically a whole bunch of different set of stocks put into one fund. So you're investing into this fund. So when all these stocks do well, you do well. When all these stocks do bad, you do bad. So for example, the S&P 500, which are the biggest uh, companies that we have in the US, you think Tesla's on there, Amazon, things like that. Um, that's a really simple way. And then you don't really do much with it. You just kind of let your index fund do it. And, you know, you can pull money out whenever you want to, you're going to be taxed. That's going to be counted towards your income when you do. Um, or you could just kind of let it sit for a while and let it ride the market. So that's kind of the, the, let's take a seat and let the money do its thing in the brokerage account. Or you could be a crazy day trader and spend all day um, trading stocks, individual stocks, and uh, trying to get those those short-term gains as you can in timing the market. Um, so you can do all of that through a brokerage account. So there's a lot more flexibility depending on how involved you want to be. Yeah, totally. And and it's more that you have direct access to the funds. So you, if you wanted to, for example, take the money out of the account after you sold some stuff off, you can do that. You may have to pay some capital gains or you may have triggered a loss. You may have triggered a capital loss, but you can take the money freely out of the account. It's not like with IRAs or 401ks where, in fact, if you take the money out of the account too early, too early being before age 59 and a half in most instances, you have to pay an extra tax penalty. With a regular brokerage account, there is no such extra tax penalty, you can just freely put money in and take it out. And there's no limitation on the amount of money that can, you can put into the brokerage account. You, as you very rightly point out, I think would ordinarily view the brokerage account as a long-term investment vehicle, unless you are really day trading. Um, most of the research suggests that something in between is even worse. Uh, it's basically like very long-term investing. Um, that's probably the safest option. Day trading, it's, a, it's pretty volatile, but of course some people make a lot of money and some people lose a lot of money and then something in between is like the worst thing to be. Um, that again, that's just when you look at most of the research out there. Um, there is the ability within an IRA or a 401k to do a lot of these like very frequent trades. Um, you might be inclined not to do that 
in in this sense. So if you try to sort of compare apples to apples. So for example, like a Robinhood type app or a lot of, there's some similar apps to Robinhood. They will allow you to trade essentially for free. So every time you trade, you don't have to pay commission to do it. In a lot of uh, IRA and 401k plans, can't say that this applies across the board, but in a lot of those plans, you really can't trade for free. There's some sort of transaction cost to it. And so it, if you're paying transaction transaction costs every time you're buying and selling, um, it becomes less wise to buy and sell frequently in those accounts, unlike something like a Robinhood, uh, where you may not have to pay a commission. So that's that's the reason that an account like a Robinhood account is so popular with people who are doing frequent trading. So hopefully that makes sense to people. Um, all right, so let me, let me change gears just a little bit. Let's talk just a bit about different types of investments. Um, if you sort of, I think if we break it down into its little component parts, there's, and we're sorry, we're talking about like investment account type investments, not not real estate or private equity or things like that. But if you sort of break it down into its component parts, there's essentially stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and then what I referenced, uh, ETFs or exchange traded funds. So can you can you break those down just a little bit? I'll jump in with my own uh, two cents worth, of course. <laughs> yeah. So stocks would be just kind of what everyone thinks of when I think, you know, they bring up the stock market. So uh, Tesla, uh, you've got Amazon, all these big companies um, that everyone's trying to get some shares in. That's get a stock in one of these companies, um, depending on how well the company's doing, depends on how much that stock is worth. Um, so what Tesla's like three grand or something like that. Now Amazon's really high, Apple, things like that. Um, so that's, um, you know, you've got a, a stake basically in the company. It's not like you've got voting rights and can go to, you know, board meetings or anything like that, but you own a tiny, tiny percent of the company, depending on your shares and, um, depending on how well the company does, you know, when they release quarterly reports, their numbers can go down or up and your investment just kind of goes with that. Um, like you said earlier, Brent, when you've got stocks, you can pull them out at any time. And so nice and liquid, but typically people think of when you're investing in the stock market, you want to be typically like three to five years out. So if you're going to, you know, go up and buy a ton, bunch of shares in Tesla, you're probably not going to be selling them next week. Um, so those are stocks. Bonds are considered the safe option. These are the people who don't like the stock market volatility, especially what we've seen this last year in 2020. The market is just crazy. So bonds are a bit different. These are government issued bonds. So that is why they are considered safer. Uh, but they do not typically uh, give you the rate of return that you would investing in just simple stocks. Um, typically in the stock market, you could see anywhere from around like around 10% rate of return if, if we're doing good we don't have any crazy thing going on in the world um, bonds are going to be a little bit less than that just because again they're more safe they're not subject to uh, the volatility as much as stocks are and it's like an IOU really with mm -hmm. the with the bonds you know it's uh, the government or corporations that issue bonds as well it's just the government bonds the interest rate or the interest that's paid can be tax-free on the government bonds um, it's it's basically an IOU. You are lending money to that uh, entity, whether it's it's a government or a corporation. So you think of like uh, a county raising funds for a road project, and and they issue bonds to raise funds for the road project. They're just wow. soliciting loans from people everywhere to raise funds that they then are obligated to pay back in the future at a set interest rate. The there's a there's a weird correlation in bonds that can affect their their pricing and can affect their volatility and that is the the prevailing interest rate and what happens with bonds is if you have a bond and you're not going to let's say it's a bond that lasts for 10 years but you don't want to hold it for 10 years you want to sell it off in year five if you when you bought that bond the bond said uh, it will pay you three percent and currently i could buy bonds that will pay me six percent so the interest rate has gone up if i was going to buy your bond i would say i will buy it but i'm going to buy it at a at a discount because I can buy a bond for 6% today. So why would I want to buy your bond at 3%? So when the interest rate goes up on these longer term bonds, when 
when you're trying to sell them, liquidate them and turn them to cash, that's where you end up selling at a discount. You end up selling for less than the bond was worth when you originally bought it because a lower interest rate in a higher interest rate environment, a lower interest rate on your bond in a high interest rate environment will make your bond worth less money in the open market. So the bond, the bond market can fluctuate quite a bit as well. The way that most advisors try to kind of uh, hedge against that is by holding short-term bonds so the interest rate fluctuations cannot be that great over time so you know maybe instead of holding a 10 20 30 year bond you hold three-year bonds or five-year bonds that way interest rates not going to change dramatically hopefully uh, unless things are going very badly um, over a three to five year horizon like they could over a 10 15 20 30 year horizon yeah, exactly. And so then I think what the last one you had mentioned was mutual funds. Mutual funds, yeah. And you had kind of mentioned that earlier, where with mutual funds, you've got a lot of people, you know, kind of pooling their money together, and then that money is now being invested. Um, so mutual funds, you know, typically when they're doing that, they're, uh, you know, all the money is pulled together, and then they're invested in um, typically a variety of different um, stocks, could be a, stocks and bonds. And so it could be a little bit more of a diversified portfolio. And so from there, you know, with a mutual fund, you don't get the flexibility of say, you know, trading your stocks individually, or, you know, if you wanted to do more short-term bonds, you get, get a bit, a little bit less of that, because again, you've got this kind of pooled account that everyone is now invested in, into, not just yourself. Yep. And someone else is doing the investing at that point, you know, the mutual fund, the fund itself has its own investment folks. They're the ones who are picking the buys and the sells. Usually with a mutual fund, there is a minimum price at which you can come in. Sometimes the mutual fund is sort of open to anybody forever. And sometimes it's closed, meaning you can only buy into it for a short period of time. So there is a distinction sometimes from one fund to the other in that way. But there's usually a minimum price that you have to put in in order to buy into the fund. So in order to sort of sort out that issue and open up the mutual fund market more, um, financial institutions came up with these exchange traded funds. And what that means is the mutual fund itself is traded on the open market and there is not the same threshold for minimum investments in an ETF versus in a mutual fund. So for example, in a mutual fund, there could be a rule that says minimum investment in this fund is say $1,000. You know, $1,000 gets you one share in the fund or, you know, one unit in the fund. With an ETF, you don't have to buy the full unit or the full share. You can buy a much, much smaller fraction of a unit or share at any price that you want. And therefore, there's not the same sort of uh, threshold that you have to overcome in terms of the cash that you're investing in the fund just to buy a piece of the fund. So ETFs, they're basically mutual funds, but they're being traded openly and you can buy very, very small pieces of them without having to commit a minimum amount to that fund. So that's if you, you know, if anybody hears those differences, that's essentially the difference between mutual funds and ETFs, um, which and is also why ETFs are quite popular because you reduce these barriers to entry. Yeah. And I think it's also good to point out there's a lot of different types. So depending on kind of just your own particular interest. So there's mutual funds and ETF funds where they're specifically focused in a certain sector. So you've got just like a tech sector. So you've got all the major tech companies that are going to be in that ETF fund. You've got some that are more focused on, um, you know, more like medical companies, pharmaceutical companies, things like that. So depending on just your your own personal interest and obviously how well each fund is doing, you want to look at its its historical record. Um, you can pick which funds you want to put your money into. So you can kind of feel like you've got a little bit more control there, even though, like you said, you've got someone else doing all the investing for you. And it's also good to point out that, you know, and this is kind of, I guess, a segue to the our our next big point about investing, which is fees, which is that some mutual funds do not have fees. Some ETF funds do not have fees. Others do. Where just to get involved into that fund, you now need to pay a fee. And there's others that don't have any fee at all. Um, and so, you know, when you think again at just overall, how much are you going to get back on your rate of return? If a mutual fund typically, let's just say it's got a 10% historical rate of return, but you have a 2% fee just to get involved, it's kind of like a commission-based fee, you're now only going to get 8% back. 
So it's something just to consider when you're looking at, oh, should I do this fund or should I do this fund? Well, if the one on the right side doesn't have any fees and it does just as well as the other, maybe that's going to be the better fund for you. Totally. The, that's the sort of secret sauce behind most of these investment uh, vehicles are the fees. And sometimes the fees are very difficult to sort out. It's very difficult to find the fee because the information that's posted about the fund is not terribly forthcoming with the fees. If, and this just as a general rule of, rule of thumb, and this obviously will not apply in every single instance, but if you just sort of use as a general rule of thumb, that when you're looking at the summary sheet for some fund or some ETF, and you're looking for what's called the expense ratio, usually that expense ratio is the annual fee for being in the fund. So if you see an expense ratio, like in your example, Rachel, if, you know, it says expense ratio 2%, that means every year you have to pay the fund a 2% fee, and that erodes whatever gains you had that year down by 2%. It also means if you have losses, it compounds the losses. It increases the losses uh, by that 2% number. 2% is very high. That'd be very, very high. Um, many what are called uh, uh, market or total market type funds or S&P 500 type funds um, have far lower um, uh, expense ratios. Sometimes some are even zero. Some, some are basically zero, uh, you know, like a fraction of a fraction of a percent. And that is because in those funds, typically the investment uh, entity the financial entity is not actively trading the fund day to day, month to month, week to week uh, during the year. Okay, so if you have a, a mutual fund that it's an index fund, meaning that it just tracks the market, they're just trying to buy enough of the market in the right proportion that you track, you're going to track whatever the stock market as a whole does. Um, there's not a lot of decision making that needs to be done behind the scenes because they're just going to try to match what the market is or like the S&P 500, you know, if you're in an S&P 500 fund, it's pretty easy for them to figure out what the top 500 uh, companies are in the market at any given time because that sort of information is publicly available. So they're not making a bunch of financial decisions behind the scenes. Therefore, the cost on the financial institution is much less to administer the fund and therefore the expense ratio is typically much, much, much smaller. And those fees can be a lot. Now, let's say someone um, doesn't want to do their own investing, so they want to hire somebody to be their advisor to do the investing. Uh, the advisors also will not do it for free. So I hear. We all have to make a living some way, you know? Some way, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, but when you've got a professional advisor, I mean, you've got the help of that exactly what I said, a professional, someone who has devoted their life to this. So when I mean, you've got a, a, an advisor, whether this is now your uh, wealth manager, an investment advisor, um, they typically will base their fees or everyone does a little bit differently. Let's first preface it by saying that um, a lot of people do it based off of a percentage of so percentage of your assets that you're investing. So if you're just saying, you know what, I've got a million dollars. I want to put a million dollars in. I don't really want to touch it. Can you just make sure it grows for me? Then they may take a small percentage fee. Could be like we've seen 1%, 3%, really just depends. So they'll just take a percentage. Other advisors do things on a commission basis, meaning um, that they will uh, pick your investments um, based on ones where, where they can get a commission. That doesn't mean the investments are bad at all, not saying that at all, um, but they you know are going to pick ones where they can get a kickback, and that means that they are not then usually charging you a fee. So that kind of helps then it takes, you know, doesn't take away from your profit, the advisor is then getting their commission directly from whichever company they're investing in. Um, there's also advisors I've heard that can just do hourly rates. So it really just depends. There's a lot of flexibility out there depending on, you know, what kind of what, what you're willing to do. The, yeah, the standard in the industry as a whole is that financial advisors need to recommend things that are appropriate for their clients. Appropriate is not necessarily best. And so if you have advisors who are operating on a commission, the standard for them is to pick the thing that's appropriate for the client, which may not be best for the client and actually may be best for the advisor in terms of the commission. So that's a, you know, that's a, a little understood element of that industry for most lay retail investors, but it is something to be wary of. Instead of that, as you were pointing out, Rachel, there are advisors who will 
work on a fee only, meaning they don't get paid a commission on anything that they recommend to you. So if they say buy into this S&P 500 fund, they're not getting a commission paid to them by the S&P 500 fund. They tend to be less expensive uh, overall, and they tend to hold themselves to the standard of we will not just get you invested in the thing that is suitable for you, but a thing that is actually in your best interest. And obviously, best interest is a much higher standard. It is better for you, the the user. And so those those are the kinds of questions that someone would want to ask their advisor about. You know, how do you get paid? What are the fees that you charge? And then what is the standard that you apply when you're making recommendations to me? Is it best interests? Is it suitability? Is it something else? Um, all of that matters. Fees north of 1% for an advisor, and so we're saying 1% annually on, on what you have invested with them, is pretty high as an industry standard. And if you think back to the example of the fees in the mutual fund, you know, every every year when you when you pay that fee, it does dilute your earnings. So the advisor really needs to be providing value to justify that fee. And so most investors should be wise to that and should hold their advisor to it. That's not to say that the advisors can predict what the market's going to be or they can guarantee returns, et cetera. Um, but they should be providing they should be providing some real value. Um, all right, let's change gears just a little bit and then talk maybe, you know, say somebody's getting into investing, whether they have an advisor or not. There's really a difference between, and we've sort of touched on these, there's a difference between short-term investing and long-term investing. And I think oftentimes comments that I hear from, again, friends, family, colleagues, uh, clients, when they hear investing, they think of short-term investing. Yeah, so short-term investing um, would be the big old GameStop bubble that we were just hearing about very recently in the news that was all over the place. Oh, yes. <laughs> Going to the moon. And long-term investing would be, um, I would say, five years plus, right? And letting your investments really, really ride the market. Um, so short-term investing, that's kind of your, your day traders. Those are um, individuals who spend a considerable amount of time. They truly love this stuff. They are looking at the quarterly reports. They are following the tweets from the CEOs of the companies. Um, they, they truly know the insides and outs so that when they're looking at this, they can time at what point during the day is a high and a low to, to, their, to their best knowledge, right? No one's going to know with 100% certainty. Um, and so when you've got short-term investing, you, like I say, you're, you're investing a lot of time in this and potentially you could have really high highs and you could bring in a lot of gains or as, and, and we've seen that with the whole GameStop phenomena, people raking in hundreds of thousands of dollars. And these are just normal Joe Schmo people, but you've also seen a really, a, a lot of losses and people who, who didn't time it right. Or you know, just something came out of nowhere that they didn't see coming. Um, like again, it's you're, it's the market. You're never going to know with hundred percent certainty. And so it's a lot more volatile, a lot more volatile. And um, when you've got short-term investing, you also have to think about you've got short-term capital gains. So you've held the stock um, less than a year. And so now you're going to have uh, short-term capital gains, and those rates are going to be based on your ordinary income tax rate bracket. So whatever you're in, if you're at 25%, you're going to be taxed at 25% uh, when you take that money out. Um, Long-term investing is when you're holding, for, in terms of the just taxes, you're going to be holding the stock for more than a year. And so then uh, you're going to be taxed at capital gains rates, which um, there's different uh tax brackets, depending on where you are in your ordinary income tax bracket. So you just kind of have to pair it up, but they are considerably lower than typically where your ordinary income tax bracket is. So it's a lot better. People want to be in the long-term tax bracket, long-term capital gains brackets than the short-term ones. Um, so really long-term is just holding it technically for more than a year, but typically people are going to see it where you're, you're, you're not doing this thing on a day-to-day -day basis. You're really just letting it ride with the market so you can see more long-term gains. Yeah. It's more of a buy and hold strategy in long-term investing. If, you know, a lot of people, when you think of like a chart of the stock market, you see there's a line and it's got these huge spikes up and down, 
and even on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, you know, it's just like going crazy. Some people see that and they think, wow, that's really exciting. I want to try and figure out how to go from the bottom to the top and get out at the top, right? So that's that's more short-term investing. If then you look at that same chart and it gets drawn out over 10, 15, 20, 30 years, the lines actually smooth out because they start to average out a bit. It doesn't have tremendous ups and downs like it would on a, a short-term basis. So for somebody who's thinking about long-term investing, you're thinking, ah, the longer I hold this, the more it smooths out over time, the highs and the lows, and over time, uh, on an averaging basis, I'm going to get a certain return. You know, historically speaking, that's just the case. And, and most major financial institutions have done all kinds of uh, analysis and, and studies of the stock market and the bond markets historically going back to say like the depression to see like what has what has the market actually done? How has it actually performed in the past? Um, and when you look at those sorts of models, the line becomes much less volatile over time. So long-term investing, you're trying to say, I'm going to be in the market because it has certain historical returns and those are favorable for me. But if I stretch it out over a long period of time, the volatility will be less on an average basis. And then if you're doing short-term investing, you're thinking on a short-term basis, there's a lot of volatility in the market. And I am going to try to pick when the volatility is working in my favor. You know, when the market is down to get in, when the market is up to get out. Uh, it's very challenging. There's not a lot of research to support that over time, uh, trying to time the market on a short-term basis works out to be better than trying to time the market um, on a long-term basis as a general proposition. Okay, so when you sort of look at, the, you sort of analyze how people do as a large group of investors, the data does not necessarily support the short-term investor's strategy. Obviously, there are always exceptions to the rule, always. And there are exceptions to the rule on the, on the long-term side too. Some people who invest with a long-term view who do worse. Um, but again, if you look at the data and the research in a broader sense, averaging and looking at the population as a whole, generally long-term investing outperforms the short-term investing. Um, that's just the data. And so if you're going to do short-term investing, it's because it's fun for you uh, or you think that you can beat the averages. Yep, exactly. Do, do you want to put in the time to do all of that um, or, or do you not? That's how I kind of always think about it. Um, so one question I want to hit you with real quick, because I've mm -hmm. seen this a lot recently in the news, is Bitcoin and Bitcoin becoming a huge, potentially, investment opportunity. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, I think it's here to stay. If I'm prognosticating here, it's not like I have any sort of inside knowledge. I own zero Bitcoin, so none of this is like <laughs> uh, going to help me. But um, it's certainly here to stay. I don't think that virtual currencies or virtual markets are going away. I think we're only going to see more and more of them. And it's it's interesting, but it's a lot more, I think it's a lot more like a commodity at this point than it is an investment in the S&P 500. And some of that is because it doesn't, there's no, there's no history to it. So you can't act, you know, you can't look back at how it has done historically to know what's going to happen in the future. Although of course with commodities, you do somewhat have that, that data, but it's really something that's more traded um, based on what people are feeling in the moment and what people are speculating about what could, could happen in the future. You don't have the ability to look back at the data like you could with the S&P 500 to see historically when you get out of sort of very short-term sentimentalities about the market, and then you stretch that over time, what has the S&P 500 done? Bitcoin doesn't have that view. So if somebody's investing in Bitcoin, it's you would be doing it with that understanding in mind that you only have a very narrow window of information to work off of. And you're hoping that, say, current sentimentality about Bitcoin is going to be its future sentimentality or that there isn't going to be another more attractive alternative to Bitcoin, which I think inevitably there will be. And whether Bitcoin will be sort of like AOL and it's going to have its, you know, it's going to have its wave and it will crest and there'll be Yahoo after that and it'll crest and then, you know, there'll be Google after that, you know, that's what happens in the normal markets. And so I don't think rationally you could assume that in the virtual currency market, the same thing is not going to happen. And it might also be that with virtual currencies, just by their very nature, Nature, those waves and crests could come even faster than with like a big corporation that could, you know, you could have the heyday of Sears and now Sears is gone and now there's 
there's Amazon, you know, maybe someday there's going to be the Amazon competitor and Amazon will go away. So that's the way I view Bitcoin. I don't know if I'm right. History will will uh, tell us, but that's the way I view it today. Yeah, no, I, I completely agree with you. I think virtual currency and, and just cryptocurrency in general, that's going to be the way of the future. It's just such a secure way to transact. Um, and it's, you know, it's one currency across the globe. So really, really a lot more easy just to uh, do a lot more, you know, transactions globally. Um, but like you said, it's, you know, right now, Bitcoin's the one that everyone just knows off the top of their head, but there are other virtual currencies. And so which one is going to be the winner? No one really knows. Um, I think, you know, right now, I can, I agree with you on that. It's, it's more of a commodity because it's it's just had so much fluctuation in the past. Um, I see a lot more financial institutions getting on board with it now. And they if if you get the bigger institutions to back it so that it's not just a commodity, it's more of a currency, then I could see it really taking off in the future. But until we really see that traction getting going, um, you know, who knows? And then, like you said, there's always going to be a competitor, right? If if Bitcoin is the one, let's just say, that takes off, someone's going to want to join that bandwagon. You know, like just how now we've got a gazillion different streaming services available to us. It's not just Netflix anymore. I could see that the same thing being with virtual currency. So we'll just have to, yeah. time will tell. Well, imagine, well, think about this. And I, you know, I hear about a lot of people saying, well, you know, virtual currencies are going to take over traditional currencies in some sense. And Maybe that could be the case, but as far as I'm aware, Bitcoin and all other virtual currencies are still valued based on their value in conventional currency. So until that changes, I don't really see them becoming a quote unquote currency in the same way as the US dollar is a currency. I think it's more a matter of if you can trade in Bitcoin, which is a reflection of value in a government-backed currency like the US the US dollar, can you smooth out the transaction costs of doing that in a way that doesn't require you to say go to the bank uh, or doesn't require you to have a middle person to run the transaction, which is inevitably less efficient than just being able to do the transaction from point A to point B. That's the really interesting part for me about virtual currencies. You know, it's not that they're going to become quote unquote currencies in the same sense as the US dollar or the euro are. It's that they are going to allow transactions in those currencies to happen much more efficiently, somewhat like, although not entirely like, uh, you know, if I had to pay you by check, you'd have to go, you know, I have to write my check. It's a check drawn against my account at my bank, but then you take it to your bank and then that bank gives it to a clearinghouse and the clearinghouse gets the money from my bank and then they pay the money to, you know, that's just an inefficient way to transfer money. Whereas I can Venmo you right now from my phone and it's a direct transaction. There may still be clearinghouses involved, but it's a much more efficient transaction with, with Bitcoin and virtual currencies. It's just making those sorts of transactions even more uh, uh, easy to conduct. Then now flip that into marginalized communities where banks do not have locations. Banks do not have ATMs. Banks do not do business. Well, if you can transact in a virtual currency efficient, efficiently and you don't need a bank, then that actually opens up, in essence, the banking market, so to speak, to communities that didn't have access to it to begin with. So imagine marginalized communities, say, in the United States, then uh, and then push that out to uh, less developed countries in the world. And all of a sudden, the market for virtual currencies becomes enormous. Yeah, absolutely. I I 100% agree. I, I can't wait for that day. <laughs> I think that'll be a good day. I think so, too. I'm interested in it. Mm -hmm. I think what could happen is that governments could come up with their own virtual currency systems that you have to use. And you may have to trade in virtual currencies when you go across borders in the same way that you have to trade in currency. You have to exchange you know, US dollars for yens or, or something else. Like, I think that could also happen. If that happened, it's, again, I'm prognosticating here. Who knows if any of this is even accurate, but um, I think if that did happen, it would make virtual currencies much less useful. Uh, and it would, you know, it would turn like a Bitcoin, let's say Bitcoin became the player in the US, it would turn Bitcoin in, into the US dollar, where if you wanted to go say, go into China, 
and use Bitcoin, you'd have to convert into the Chinese virtual currency or, you know, some other market that has sort of a protected virtual currency of their own. So that does that does not excite me a ton. I hope that doesn't happen. But to your point, if we have it and it just makes transactions easier to do, that can be a good thing and more secure. Sorry, I should say more secure. Mm-hmm. Way more secure. Yeah. Yep. It's very interesting. I mean, I don't know. What do you think about it? You think uh, you think Bitcoin is going to be the virtual currency going forward, or you think it's going to phase out and we're just going to have Bitcoin 2.0, whatever that is? <laughs> I again, I am not a professional investment advisor at all. I would have to say my my theory is that Bitcoin is here to stay, that it's kind of set itself up as the Netflix of virtual currency, right? It's it's going to take a while, right? Netflix, you remember, you used to have to mail the DVDs back and it was old school. And now it's all streaming and it's great. Everyone's got it. Um, so I think that's kind of, we're in the DVD stage right now of Bitcoin. So I think, <laughs> you know. The laser that, disc. We're in yes. the laser disc era of Bitcoin. Yes. I just got to give it a little bit more time. I think once we get uh, more financial institutions to come and back it, um, for its its price to go up quite a bit so that it's a bit more stable. You know, right now, I was saying it, it fluctuates quite a bit, but if it can go up to a price where it's, you know, like Amazon, where it's like $3,000 a share, I mean, that's a pretty secure investment, right? I mean, it's I, I don't see that tanking in an instant because of some crazy event. Um so I think it's just kind of getting to that moment. So we'll see. We'll keep sending the DVDs back right now for Bitcoin and we'll just we'll give it a little bit more while and we'll see where it goes. But I do think there will be competitors that do come along, um, which is good, right? We, we want more competitors because it just makes it we got a free market like that. Yeah, totally. And um, it's it's very interesting, like that point of of the price versus the volatility and the ability of a virtual currency to be a true currency. I mean, the the thing that makes the US dollar so good is it's stable. And that's the problem, I think, in terms of like general consumer use of, of virtual currencies. That's the problem with virtual currencies is they're not stable. Yeah. Whereas, you know, $100 today is still $100 tomorrow you know, inflation adjusted, whatever, but it's still $100. But as I was maybe very poorly explaining, because Bitcoin is still measured against some other currency and it's volatile, it's way less useful as a currency. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Until it can get to that point, it's it's not going to be regarded like a gold, right? I feel like when, once yeah. it can get to that point, it's not just people investing in gold and silver, it's gold, silver, and Bitcoin, and then at that point is when it'll it'll be a lot more widely used. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, uh, those are our uninformed predictions that no <laughs> one should rely on ever. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Including anything we said about investments, probably. Um, but hopefully that's helpful for anybody uh, and de- demystifies a little bit of the elements of the investment industry a bit for folks. Um, as always, Rachel, I appreciate you uh, joining me. Yeah, it's been a pleasure. Hey listeners, thank you so much for spending time with us. Rachel and I both really appreciate it. We've really enjoyed doing the podcast. We're trying to do our best work and bring you valuable and useful information. And I hope you feel the same way. And if so, please subscribe to the podcast, leave us reviews, uh, subscribe to our blog if you want to follow us and see the sort of things that we write about. And also follow us on social media at Wealth and Law, basically everywhere that social media is. Thanks so much.